Well, if you've uh, got your Bibles, go ahead and uh, access those. You can turn or scroll to Luke chapter 22, 23 is where we're going to be focusing today. And uh, again, we're right in the middle of this series about embracing hope and choosing hope. And uh, we've been on this journey this year to kind of look at some of the core things of who we are as a church, words that define who we are, this idea that as Christians, we ought to be about experiencing the most pleasure, peace, meaning, and hope in our lives. And we spent the first two months talking about pleasure and peace, and now we're looking at hope and how we can experience hope. And so I I know we probably had all times in our life when we really hoped for something to happen. I remember one of those times in my life, it was July 24th. Uh, 1990, trying to make sure I get the year, 1997, um, no, I'm sorry, 1990, and it was Katie's birthday, my wife's birthday, and it was the day I had chosen to ask her to marry me, and so I had this uh, elaborate plan. I This was before, like, the days of, like, people Instagramming their, their engagement stories and creating all of these, you know, elaborate, like, people skydiving in and all this kind of stuff. I just had a very simple plan. I was going to go to dinner, and then when we got home, I was going to – I had a box wrap that I told her was from my mom and dad, but really when she opened it, it was a wedding ring. And I had a good idea that she would say yes. But I'm telling you, at dinner, my stomach and my heart just started churning and fluttering, and I was like, what if she, what if she says no? Like, this is a defining moment in my life. Like, and she says she's kind of new, but at, at dinner, I'm like sweating. I couldn't finish a steak. And if you know me, you know that's not me. And so I was really struggling. And so we get back, and I finally, I, I you know, make the plan into place. And she opens it, and I ask her, I say, will you marry me? And it was like, it was probably only maybe a half of a second, but it felt like 30 minutes, right? I mean, that, that breath between yes and it was like, oh, that relief that all of a sudden just came over you is like your hopes and dreams were fulfilled. And we've all had moments in our life like that. Maybe it was the birth of a first child or starting a new job or moving to a new city, different things that we just had these hopes that we want to play out. And sometimes we think our hopes are determined by what happens to us. But what we are beginning to figure out here as we study scripture is hope is not something that's determined or something in our future. It's actually a choice that we make, that we choose hope. You and I have this God-given ability to choose to have hope in face of whatever issues come our way. And as we walk through life, you're going to have a chance to choose hope over despair, regret, shame, discouragement, challenges, betrayal, sorrow, depression, but we can choose hope. And where do we find this truth? Last week we looked at this passage that was going to kind of be the foundation of our teaching, and it's found out in Isaiah, this, this prophet of the Old Testament, verse, uh, chapter 40, verse 30 and 31, say this, Even youths who grow tired and weary, young men stumble and fall, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and will not faint. He's saying, look, it isn't, your hope is not determined on your stage in life, how much energy you have or how much you can put into things. It is based on one simple thing. It's the Lord. Hope is a choice. It's choosing to trust the Lord over ourselves or our circumstances. And we began to look at this by looking at the life of Jesus. Because as good as this sounds, we all struggle with this. 
We all have issues with choosing hope. It's something that every person that has ever lived has struggled with. From the beginning of time, there are people that have said, you know, I want to put hope in circumstances or hope in my outcomes versus the Lord. And so last week we began this journey looking at the last few days of Jesus' life, the most difficult days of his life, when he was beaten, betrayed, crucified, killed, when everything that could would go wrong went wrong in his life. And yet, even in the midst of that, he chose hope and he demonstrated hope. And as we go through this journey, we're going to see some key barriers that repeatedly crop up in some of the interactions that Jesus had. And we are going to look at these four interactions. We looked at one last week with Barabbas and the the chief priest, and we're going to look at another one this week and then two more in the future that help us see some of these barriers that keep us from choosing hope. And the, the interaction we're going to look at today is, to me, one of the most unique conversations and interactions that Jesus has had during the crucifixion story. It's actually in the very last moments of Jesus' life, and it's when he is nailed on the cross between two men. And these two men begin an argument about who Jesus was in front of him. If you look at it in Luke chapter 23, verse 32 and 33, we kind of get a glimpse of this story. It says, two others who are criminals. Now, just to give you an idea, these criminals more than likely were probably associates of Barabbas the guy who had just been released. Like, if you can imagine the angst that they must have been feeling, like, why Barabbas? Why did they choose? Why why not me? Why am I the one on this cross? There was probably a lot of angst and anxiety that was going on in their life, walking up into that moment, and now they're nailed on the cross. They know they are moments from death. And so these two criminals were led away to be put to death with him, who was Jesus. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Now, again, before we continue with this story, I want us to pick up the story where we left it off last week and kind of bring it up to this point and see how Jesus responds in dealing with some very difficult and anxiety-producing moments, situation that would eventually lead him to the cross and his death. And he basically went through about three or four trials in this season of his life. Literally within one day, he's paraded in front of different people that are trying to judge him and bring judgment upon him. If you remember last week, we talked about how the religious leaders had set up this elaborate scheme to arrest and confront Jesus at night so that he was away from the crowds in orders to to bring the accusation of blasphemy against him. And then they took him before Pilate, the Roman governor, to accuse him of rebellion against Rome. They didn't accuse him of blasphemy before Pilate. They said he's trying to overthrow Rome. I mean, they were creating all kinds of accusations. Pilate, then finding no fault with him, tries to use a custom of releasing a prisoner. And Pilate, at this point, was thinking, of course they're going to release, want the release of Jesus. Just two days ago, or three days ago, they were crying Hosanna as he walked down the streets. But the chief priest had manipulated the crowd and handpicked people to be in that crowd to, to cry out to free Barabbas instead of Jesus. And in the midst of all this, Jesus is now being led around as, as Barabbas is being set free, Jesus is being led around and put on trial. Jesus faces a number of accusers. He's going to stand before the most powerful religious leader in all of Jerusalem. He's going to stand in front of the most powerful Jewish politician in the region. 
And he's going to stand in front of Roman soldiers, the most powerful military force in the world at that time. And he's going to stand in front of a mocking crowd that is demanding his death. Yet he responded to each of these, not with anxiety or fear, but with a confident hope. He chose hope. He thwarted their attempt to demoralize and destroy him. And so let's look at some of these interactions. The first we're going to look at is in Luke 22, verses 63 and 64. And it says this. Now, the men who were holding Jesus in custody, which was the chief priests and elders, uh, the Jewish leaders of the time, they were mocking him and they beat him. And they also blindfolded him and they kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. Jesus had just been interrogated, not but just by the current high priest, but by the guy who had been high priest for 16 years prior to this. The two most powerful Jewish religious leaders in that day. I mean, these were men whose word was law for the Jews in Jerusalem. He was standing before Caiaphas and Ananias, the two most powerful religious leaders. And these men would strike fear into most everyone. People would see them walking down the street, and they would literally run the other direction in case they would do something to offend them. They would make men tremble. But after his interrogation, they didn't just leave him. They, They sent him out with the temple guard. And they began to rough him up a bit, and they began basically playing this game with him where they blindfolded him, and one of them would punch him and say, who was it? If, you're, if you can prophesy, if you're a prophet, tell us who was it. Was it Jimmy? Was it Bobby? That's probably not Roman names, but whoever it was, like, who was it that hit you? And they would just do that over and over again, teasing and mocking Jesus. And the crazy thing, they were, they were like bullies in a schoolyard. But do you know what Jesus does here? He doesn't respond. He doesn't cry out. He doesn't, he doesn't allow them to, to break his spirit. They demand for some kind of sign or show of Jesus, and they are met with silence by their actions. He doesn't give in them any joy in their attacks, and he shows no anxiety in that moment. Jesus, in that moment, when he is being beaten, and when he's being mocked, and he's being, being asked to show his power, says no. He doesn't even respond. After the temple guards, we're going to see that he's then paraded in front of somebody else. Turn over to Luke chapter 23, verses 8 and 9, and we see a new character come into the mix here, and it's this guy named Herod. Now, Herod, uh, just to help you understand, Herod is one of the, the Jewish, he's kind of Jewish and Roman uh, at the time, and he's given his power by Rome, and he oversees one of the four major areas of conquered Israel. So he kind of oversees uh, and is not really king, but the Jewish leader of these areas. And verse 8 says this, When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him. And he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. When Pilate heard that Jesus was from Galilee, he sent him to Herod, because that's the area that Herod oversaw and I want you to see, Herod had heard all about Jesus, right? I mean, he had this guy who had been walking around, especially his region of Israel, performing miracles, doing these signs, hearing these amazing stories, making trouble in the temple. He had heard about Jesus, but he had never met Jesus. So when Jesus was brought before him, this was Herod's moment. He was like, I'm going to get this guy to do a trick for me. 
I'm going to have to get this guy to do a, a miracle for me. I don't know what it was. I don't know if they stuck something in front of it, some water in front of me and said, hey, I heard you turn this to wine. Turn this to wine. Or they would bring some sick people out and say, heal these people. Whatever it was, they were only looking for a show. Just a show. That's what Jesus was to Herod. But yet again, Jesus does something unique here. He doesn't respond. It says here that he made no answer. He didn't become anxious standing in front of the powerful and hated Herod. He didn't feel the need to prove himself or even dignify Herod with a word of response. And soon Herod grew tired of Jesus and said, send him back to Pilate. He says, I got, I've seen no fault with this man. There's no reason to kill him, but he doesn't amuse me anymore. So he sends away Jesus back to Pilate. And then we come to the next part of the story, which is in Luke 23, 35 through 37. This time, Jesus had already been back before Pilate. He had been sentenced to crucifixion, and now we see him on the cross. And it said the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself. He is the Christ, the God. He is the chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. I want you to understand as Jesus is on this cross, the, the crucifixion was the most horrendous type of death sentence that Rome could pronounce on someone. It was so horrendous that it was against the law for Roman citizens to be crucified. And so Jesus, it, it was not just a painful death, it was a humiliating death. They would strip you, beat you, hang you on a, a, a cross on a hill for everybody to see. It was, me, it was meant to be as humiliating as it was painful. And at this time, as Jesus hung on the cross, he was being this onslaught of mocking and shaming was coming his way. They were accusing him and, and saying, oh, if you're the king, then show your power. And these Roman soldiers are basically saying, look, let's see who's more powerful. Is it you, the king of the Jews, or is it Rome? Who's really more powerful? We'll see. Come down off of that cross. And they were wanting a demonstration of power as well. And you know what Jesus does here? Jesus doesn't respond. The mocking voices carried through the morning air, but the silence of Jesus was just as loud. The few words that he did say on the cross, he did not respond to the mocking. They were not words of rebuke or response, but instead of forgiveness and hope. Jesus did not allow the words of these men, of these Roman soldiers, of the leaders, of Herod, of the temple guard, to cause him to respond in a way to lose hope, even in deeply anxious moments. And we see one other interaction here, and it's with the criminal on the cross. We look in verse 39 and 41, it says this, Then one of the criminals who was hanging railed at him and said, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving a due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Jesus is in the last moments of his life, and a quarrel breaks out across from him. They're shouting back and forth. And the anxiety of this moment causes this man, who is about to die, to lash out and say, Jesus, if you are who you are, do something for me. Save me. He was demanding that Jesus show his power for his own good and to save him from his physical death. 
that the other criminal knew that it was an innocent man that hung between them. That it, Jesus did not deserve to be there, and they had no right to demand anything of Jesus. And you know what Jesus does in this moment? He doesn't respond again. He doesn't call out the criminal. He doesn't respond to this demand for a show of power for the sake of man. It's actually a reminder of those who led him to this point. That every confrontation to this point that has been trying to get Jesus to respond to do something is trying to say, God, you work for us instead of us submitting to you. And that's how we often work in our own life. Sometimes we get into anxious situations. We get into desperate times and we say, God, you have to do this for me. You have to come through. And we see this last interaction in verse 42 and 43 when Jesus, when the criminal that defended Jesus says this in verse 42, and he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. The last interaction is between this criminal who spoke up for Jesus. Both of these men were guilty in the eyes of the law, but yet he did not demand salvation. He simply wanted Jesus to remember him in his kingdom. Now think about this for a minute. For those who heard this, how foolish this must have sounded. These guys are dying on the cross. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. The guy's about to die. There's no kingdom he's going to set up there. He's not coming off of there and heading to the throne room. What are you asking? It would have seemed ludicrous to those around him. And while the temple guards, Herod, and the Roman soldiers and the other criminal all wanted to try to paint Jesus into a corner and make him respond to their demands, this criminal on the cross used his last words to honor Jesus, to worship Jesus, and to find hope in Jesus. And what did Jesus finally do? Jesus finally responded. He responded. Jesus heard the man's request, but more than that, he heard the man's choice to find hope in the Lord over the anxiety of the moment that he was facing. He heard the man abandon the desire to be saved physically and instead experience true hope in spiritual restoration. And Jesus gave him hope. He promised to be with him in paradise that day. That man's faith to overcome anxiety and choose hope led to his redemption. It was an act of submission and surrender. And this brings us to the barrier that we face today. And you've heard the word over and over again. And it's choosing hope over anxiety. Over anxiety. You and I will all face difficult circumstances. Of, the, of those in this story that interacted with Jesus, only one got a response. But there was only one who chose to have hope in the Lord. And I would love to say I would have that kind of faith. That in that moment, even on my deathbed, even facing certain death, that I would be able to choose hope over anxiety. But I'm not sure that I would. I'm sure sometimes, and I know sometimes, I find myself like those that mock Jesus in this story, that demanded that he do something for me, that asked Jesus to work for me instead of me submitting to him. The truth is the temple guards and Herod, they were actually anxious as well. They were anxious in how they dealt with Jesus because if they handled this wrong, they may lose their position with Rome. Even the Roman soldiers were anxious, trying to prove that the Roman Empire was more powerful than this lowly Jewish carpenter. They all had anxiety at 
They all were dealing with this. But at the end of the day, it was the one criminal on the cross that realized that hope is greater than anxiety. I want you to look quickly at a verse out of 2 Corinthians that helps us understand this. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18 says this. So we do not lose heart, which means becoming anxious. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And we not look not to the things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And I want you to see a couple of things of what we try to do, how we think Jesus ought to respond to us when we get anxious. How do we want Jesus to respond? The first thing it says is this, is that our, our outer self is wasting away. We, th- we think about that, and we want Jesus to alleviate our problems. We want the alleviation of all our problems. We think of, if we're going to stop being anxious, then Jesus just needs to take away our problems. Our outer self is wasting away. Fix it. This was the criminal on the cross that scolded Jesus. Save my life. Fix my problems. Take away my pain. We want Jesus to swoop in and solve the problems and solve the world's problems. I, I know I, I was thinking back when I was in high school. I remember many days I showed up to school and there was a test and I was not ready for this test. I had chosen not to study for whatever reason. And I remember those days as the test was being handed out, saying a brief prayer, dear God. Dear God, if you will give me the answers to this test, I'll promise to study next time. I'll follow you more. I'll do more for you. Like, I was trying to, like, fix my problem, God. If you will fix my problem, then I will do what you want me to do. We find our hope in the removal of trials rather than in the presence of God. But it doesn't stop there. It says then we look at these light and momentary afflictions. And this is what we want next. We want solutions to our circumstances. God, bring solutions. Like, we get hit with the, we think these momentary afflictions become permanent and debilitating. We lose a job, there's a death of a family member, a physical hardship, an attack on our reputation. This is what the soldiers were mocking Jesus about. You need to fix your circumstances. If you can fix it, do it. They were putting that pressure. Jesus was always, we want Jesus to give us a way to make things like they were. To always be healthy and happy, to not be uncomfortable or distressed, to feel like the God of our lives is comfort and stress-free living. And if God is God, he should be providing that for us. But the third thing we see here is what we want Jesus to do is to have this demonstration of power. And it says, you look, we not look for things not seen, but we should look for things that are unseen. We pray for Jesus to perform some kind of miracle for us, to demonstrate his power in our lives in a way that makes it easier for us to live. This is like Herod and the temple guards that were demanding Jesus to show them a sign. We think hope comes in some miracle cure, some dramatic change in our life events instead of the ability to endure hardships. We just want that magic bullet. I, I have bought lottery tickets in the past. And I remember buying a lottery ticket one time. It was like one of those six, seven hundred million ones. And I'm like praying. As I, I don't know if you're supposed to pray when you buy a lottery ticket. But like I was praying. And I was like, you know, God, if I win, I will be very generous with this money. Like I will give, you know, at least half of it away. And the other 300 million I'll keep and do good things with. Like I just remember, like, give me that magic ball. Like winning the lottery would solve every problem 
in my life. And we think, just demonstrate your power to me. What a great testimony. I could go around and share to everyone. I prayed, and God made me win the lottery. I mean, wow, how crazy is that? But, but we don't just do that in simple things like that in our life. We, we do it when difficulties and challenges have come. We want that magic bullet. And can I tell you why these things don't calm our anxieties and why Jesus didn't respond to those people and why when we approach in this way, we won't experience hope? And it's first, I want you to hear this, problems aren't the problem. Problems are not the problem. We, we think problems are the problems. You look at, at Romans 5, it actually tells us in 3 through 4 that we actually have these sufferings to produce character and endurance in our life. And endurance through this character produces hope. We actually have hope as we deal with problems. So it's not the problems that are the problem. It's how we view the problems. The second reason this won't come, our anxieties, is this. is because better circumstances aren't the cure. Just, just living in better circumstances, getting a better apartment, getting a better job, having more money in the bank, that does not solve our problems. It says, and later on in Romans, that as we have suffering, it actually is worth looking at this, comparing it to our future glory. And the future glory that we're going to experience is where we find our hope, not in our current circumstances. And then the third thing I want you to see is this, is power isn't the purpose of following God. It's not just we become, God becomes our genie and we can start to rub the lamp and get anything we want. God uses unseen power in our life to show his faithfulness. We have the power of the Holy Spirit working within us, as Romans fifteen thirteen says. It says, through the power of the Holy Spirit, you will abound in hope. So hope actually comes through problems. Hope comes through enduring circumstance. Hope comes through the idea that the power holds us up is not expressed out. So I want you to understand that that when we try to treat and tell God what to do, that's not the way to choose hope over anxiety. And I want to quickly close with this. Then how does Jesus respond? How should we want Jesus to respond? And how should we respond? Just like the criminal on the cross who said to the other one, he said, do you not fear God? Since you're under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. The first is this fear God more than you feel your problems. And the fear of the Lord here is not this, it's not being scared of God. It actually means to have your thoughts consumed by God, to be in awe of God, to be so overwhelmed by Him, you can't think of anything else. It's like when we are afraid of something, and that's the only thing we can think of. The fear of the Lord keeps us focused on the Lord, not our problems. And then second is this, surrender to God more than you do to your circumstances. We get so caught up in our circumstances sometimes that all we do is talk about our circumstances. Talk about what we're going through. Talk about the problems that we're facing. And we end up talking more about our circumstances than we do about God. I love that the criminal on the cross here did not talk about what he was going through. He talked about the character of God. He talked more about God. Even in his last breaths, he was talking about the character of God. And then finally, desire provision more than you desire power. You know, when you go back to what he said, the criminal asked for one simple thing. Would you remember me? Remember me. 
You know, we want God to solve our problems, and we, we try to instruct him in what to do. But God's power is always available to us, but is to often sustain us, not to rescue us, not to take us out of a problem that he's actually using to grow hope in our life. And I know many times I would rather want to dispense God's power than actually be a recipient of the power of the hope of the Holy Spirit in my life. And when we start doing that, when we fear God more than our problems, when we surrender to God more than our circumstances, and then we desire provision, then our anxieties begin to calm. And here's why that is. is because in Proverbs it tells us fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. Fear is where we have wisdom. And then we learn that as we surrender, surrender is the pathway to understanding. We start understanding why we're walking through what we're walking through. It's not that we just have wisdom about it, but now we're, we're beginning to understand the steps that we're taking and we're walking with God that then helps us understand that, that God's provision is the assurance of God's presence. Is that we don't just understand, but we're actually walking through this with God. His presence is with us all the time. So my question for the day is this. How are your anxieties causing you to try to and direct Jesus to action instead of being directed to action by him for your anxieties. We all have anxiety. We all struggle. We all deal with difficult circumstances. But are your anxieties causing you to try to tell God what to do? Or are they causing you to go to God and saying, God, help me know what to do next? It's very easy to fall in the trap of the temple guards, a Herod, or the Roman soldiers, or the scoffing criminal on the cross. We find ourselves in a bind under pressure, facing something we don't know how to handle, and we start telling Jesus what to do. We treat the Lord of heaven and earth like he is a servant or a slave, demanding him to alleviate our problems, solve our circumstances, and demonstrate his power. And if he doesn't, we lose hope. But I want you to hear this. If that's the case, you never chose hope in the first place. Hope isn't found in the alleviation of problems, but instead in the abundance of faith. The faith that we have to, no matter what we face, know that Jesus has promised to never leave us or forsake us. My challenge to you today is this. Would you do like the criminal on the cross? Not the one who asked Jesus to save him, but would you be like the one who said, Jesus, would you remember me? Remember me, even in my most difficult times. Let's pray together.